John chapter 8, verses 21 to 30. This is the word of Almighty God. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you're from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. I want you to pray with me now. Father, Our prayer now is that you would add your blessing, your spirit, your power to our study of your word. I'm grateful to sing these sweet old hymns today. I know that uh, there's so much we get to do this day that will glorify you. But I pray for the next little bit that you will work in our hearts, changing us, growing us accomplishing your will right here in a place that nobody expects lives to be changed by God. God, do mighty works. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you may be seated. I want you all to think for a little bit about hospitals and babies. For some of us, it's been a long time. If my memory serves me correctly, and it has been a while, When my kids were born, each little person, and Mitzi and I also, we had, the baby had a little bracelet, a little hospital bracelet. Like the baby had one on their ankle, and Mitzi and I had bracelets. You guys, Mitzi, that's true, right? They all had bracelets? She says, yes, they did. I'm so glad. Any of y'all that have had babies, they still do that? They still snap the little bracelet on the baby's ankle? Okay. Now, here's a question for y'all. Why? Why does the hospital staff have a little, little bracelet on the baby's foot that they check before they give the baby to mom or dad? Anybody got a guess as to why that might be? Pretty much, pretty much the staff wants to be sure that no matter what, they never give the wrong baby to the wrong adults. Some of my children are regretting that to this day. <laughs> but let me ask you this. How important do you think it is that we identify the correct child in the hospital. You guys think that's a big deal? Some of you are for it. Do you think, again, some of you are going, is there a rich family? Uh, Do you think there would have been anything wrong with a misidentification? Again, if you've met my children, you know they're the right ones. They they are ours. There's no doubt about it. They act just like their mother. Um, How about you, though? Let's say that you have a medical procedure coming up. Do you want to be sure that the hospital knows who you are before they get to work on you? You guys are for that, right? 
I think we can all agree knowing who's who matters. But if knowing who's who matters in a hospital, it matters even more when it comes to issues related to salvation. See, when we talk about life and death, heaven and hell, forever with God or forever under God's wrath, identity issues are vital. If you want to be forgiven by God, you need to properly know the identity and the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it ain't happening. If you don't know the true Jesus, you don't have salvation. And that, dear friends, is a big deal, even bigger than getting the right baby in the hospital. So here in John 7, this is where we're studying, Jesus has been clearly testifying to the crowds about his identity and about his mission. The Savior has taught clearly about God, about Jesus saying that he is the Son of God, that he's truly God in the flesh. He's been clear about his mission to come and save the souls of God's elect. And there are some people who have believed Some have come close, but haven't gotten there. Some people have opposed Jesus vehemently. But with every passing day of the Feast of Tabernacles here in John 7 and 8, with each God-glorifying element of that festival in the background, Jesus keeps telling people who he is, and he calls people to come to him for salvation. Now, you may remember last week, Jesus has been in a conversation with the Pharisees, the the religious teachers there. They, They want to trap Jesus. They want to arrest Jesus. They want to get Jesus off the scene. So early in chapter eight, Jesus stands up and he says, I'm the light of the world. And that declaration from Jesus, that's a declaration of incredible significance. Jesus was telling them he is God, that he is our source of salvation. And as you might imagine, that led to some pretty interesting argument between Jesus and the Jews. So today, we're picking right up where we left off. We're picking up with Jesus talking to us about his identity and his mission. And I'll tell you that today, we're going to find a pretty concise presentation of the gospel, of the good news of God's saving grace. Listen to me. Nothing I could tell you could be more important for your soul than what I've got to tell you today. Nothing I could tell you could be more appropriate for a Sunday when we're going to be privileged to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you are a note taker, by the way, I want you to get ready to find five key points from today's passage. If you don't yet know Jesus, or if you're not sure if you know Jesus, if you don't know whether you know Jesus, I want you to pay attention today to the calls to believe. If you do know Jesus, and I'm guessing that's most of y'all, listen well so that you can be sure that you can clearly present the gospel to other people. And I want this passage to help you to be ready to worship Jesus and Lord's Supper at the end of the service as you marvel at the grace God has given you. So y'all ready to get started? Point number one for you note takers. Admit you are guilty of sin. Admit you are guilty of sin. Even our little guys can write this stuff down. Look at verses 21 and 22. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? 
since he said, where I'm going, you cannot come? Back in John chapter 7, a few days earlier during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus told the crowd he was going away. John seven thirty three to 36 reads like this. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now back then, probably Wednesday of the week, the Jews are positing maybe Jesus is going to go away to teach the Gentiles. And by the way, you need to remember, that was them attempting to belittle Jesus when they said that because to the Jew of the first century, little could be more unpalatable than to spend, one, spend one's time out of the land of Israel and in the company of the unclean. Well, today Jesus goes even further. He says... He's going away. We're going to learn in some upcoming verses that Jesus is telling us that he is he's pointing to his mission here. He's pointing to the fact that he's going to leave the earth. And he accomplishes that through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the, de- from the dead, his ascension into heaven. We'll get to that in a moment. But the Savior tells us the Jews are going to seek him and they're going to die in their sins. What does he mean that they're going to seek him? Well, maybe there's a figurative meaning here. The Jews say that they're looking for their Messiah. They're looking for the coming of the Christ. The Messiah is, of course, the person that God has promised that he would send into the world to rescue his people and set right what's gone wrong. I'll give you a couple verses from Genesis to talk about the Messiah and the promise. In Genesis 3.15, God, actually speaking to the devil, says... I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or Genesis 12, 3, God's talking to Abraham says, I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or Genesis 49, 10, actually Jacob speaking of Judah says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So those three verses, just in the book of Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, we see that God is sending somebody into the world who will crush the devil, who will bless the nations, and who will rule the world. And that's going to happen because a person comes who is descended from Eve, Abraham, and Judah. And every bit of the Old Testament promises that this glorious Savior King will come. That's what the Old Testament of your Bible is. It's God making a promise and then showing us how he keeps the promise that he'll send someone into the world to rescue people. So maybe when Jesus said the Jews will seek him and not find him, he's telling them he knows he's the one that they're awaiting. And if they continue to look for the Messiah without looking to Jesus, they will never find their Messiah because only when the people are willing to turn to Jesus will they find the one they've been looking for all along. 
But I think it's probably even more likely that Jesus is saying, there's coming a day, it's about six months from the time of this conversation, when he's not going to physically be on the scene. Those teachers who've been looking for him, trying to arrest him, to denounce him, to discredit him, they will no longer have him standing in front of them. And no matter where they look for Jesus, they're not going to be able to find Jesus because he will have died, he will have come back to life, and he will have ascended to heaven alive where he will await the day of his return. Jesus says, because the religious leaders refuse to believe in him, they'll die in their sin. Now, the statement that they will die in their sin, that's Jesus telling them they're going to die. And he says to these people, they're going to be lost forever before God. If something doesn't change, the men in front of Jesus are doomed. Well, the Jewish leaders, for their part, they missed the point entirely. And instead of taking Jesus seriously, they use his statement as an opportunity to make jokes. They make nasty comments. They, they wonder to one another, is Jesus going to kill himself? Is he planning a suicide? You can picture these guys sneering at Jesus, elbowing each other in the ribs as they make light of what Jesus said. But lest we miss it, The statement of the Jewish crowd reveals a lot more about what they believe about themselves. In the Jewish culture, first century, suicide was considered to be one of the most heinous things a person could ever do. Many of the Jewish teachers would tell you that a person who committed suicide should not even be given a funeral. They said there was absolutely no way anyone who committed suicide could end up in heaven. So if you think about that in their culture, you could see what the teachers were thinking. They're looking at each other. They're kind of grinning at each other. They're saying, where can he go that we can't go and find him? Oh, I know. He must be going to go to hell. We're all going to heaven because we're righteous before God. So if this guy wants to go somewhere we can't follow him, he must be going to hell because that's the one place we can't go. And suicide is the surest way for him to get there. How ugly is that, by the way? Now, I need to make an aside. This is not in the passage, but my job is to be pastory. And this is something you need to think about. Suicide, since it's brought up, let's talk about it for a second. It's a horrible, horrible thing. It hurts so very many people. If you or someone you know has that experience in their family or friendships, I want you to know my heart breaks for you because that is heavy, hard, weighty. And I don't want you to think that no one cares or understands. But also, suicide may be one of the most selfish things a person can do. Now hear me. I genuinely sympathize with somebody who feels the dark abyss of hopelessness. And it can feel to a person, maybe because of despair or depression, maybe because of some sort of physical injury or or, or chemical problem. It may genuinely feel in a season of sorrow that there's no way out. Let me urge you, if you ever find yourself feeling that way, Reach out to a brother or sister in Christ. 
let them know that you're struggling. Do not try to do, deal with this on your own. You got to get help. I'd be happy to help. I'd be happy to point you to somebody who can help if I can't. Don't allow yourself to sink deeper and deeper into despair. But also, if you find yourself thinking about this topic, realize that to take your own life and leave other people to have to deal with the consequences of your choice, that's awful. It's tragic for you. It is cruel to the people around you. But I do want to make the doctrinal issue clear here as well. Suicide is not what the Bible calls the unforgivable sin. Those who have committed suicide don't go to hell because they've committed suicide. They, if anybody goes to hell, they go there because they never came to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. No sin has the ability to separate a Christian from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. All right, back to the confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. These men have very badly misidentified Jesus. They very badly misunderstood themselves. They think that they're holy. They think Jesus is evil. And Jesus says this is going to lead to their eternal death. They're going to die in their sins. So now before we continue on, here is where we learn from the mistake of these men. They thought there was no way they could go to hell. Why? Because they saw themselves as righteous. Let me tell y'all, Self-righteousness is one of the most dangerous sins of all. If you think for one moment that you're a good enough person, that God would never judge you, you are sadly and dangerously mistaken. Romans chapter 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is clear that all of us, every last one of us, is guilty of sin before God. All of us have failed to meet God's standard of absolute perfection. Therefore, all of us are in danger of the judgment of God. I told you, this section of Scripture, 21 to 30, gives us the gospel. But what I've told you so far may not sound like good news. Friends, there's no gospel without seeing that you should face the judgment of God. The first step is to admit that you personally are guilty of sin against God. Look at your life. I'll look at mine. You will see the mess-ups. You will see the failures. You will see the darkness in your own heart. And if you want to have hope of forgiveness, you start by seeing your sin for what it is. Sin. We're guilty before God, and we need a remedy. We need forgiveness. We need God to make us clean because we know none of us can be good enough to make ourselves clean on our own. So admit that you're guilty. Then point number two, point number two, compare yourself to Jesus's perfection. Compare yourself to Jesus's perfection. Verse 23 He said to them, you're from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 
So Jesus won't stoop to the level of the Pharisees and their snotty insults. Instead, he points out there's a big difference between him and them. He's from above, they're from below. Jesus is telling them about his identity, his nature, his perfection. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Jesus is from above. His thoughts and ways are infinitely higher than those of sinful mankind. His ways, his thoughts are infinitely higher than ours. How can that be? Simply put, we are imperfect, often wrong, easily mistaken. Would you guys agree that that's true, that you are just at least a touch less than perfect? How many of you wives would admit that your husbands are just a touch less than perfect? I love there were a few takers on that one. Praise God. Jesus is perfect. He's absolutely perfect. He is holy. He's always right. He's always righteous. Ask yourself, how big is the gap between your goodness and the goodness of God? How big is the gap between your knowledge and the knowledge of God? God is infinite, forever big in his perfections. He is almighty. He's holy. He's totally pure. He is omniscient. He knows everything. God lacks nothing in his eternal perfection. We fall short. We fail. And to fail even once sets your goodness infinitely lower than the goodness of God. To fail once sets your cleanness infinitely lower than the holiness of God. To mess up even once is to put yourself an infinite distance away from God, creating a gap between you and the Lord that you could never bridge through your own efforts. Romans 3.20 God tells us, for by works of the law, by being good, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You want a chance to be forgiven of your own sin? You've got to recognize Jesus is perfect. You've got to identify the baby in the manger on Christmas morning as someone who came to us from heaven, perfect, pure, and holy. What did we sing this, this morning? Fullness of God in helpless babe. But you also must identify the Savior that you see performing the miracles and the one teaching in the Gospels as the God-man, one of infinite glory, one of holy love. If Jesus is not infinitely, gloriously God, he could never pay the price for our sin So recognize Jesus' perfection and compare yourself to that perfection and let it lead you to see how deeply you need a Savior who is far more than you and I could ever be on our own. So we've seen that we need to be saved and we're not capable of being good enough to save ourselves. So I want us now to look at the identity of Jesus and his mission to show us how he came to save sinners. We're going to see that 
as this conflict gets even deeper. Point number three, believe in Jesus' divine identity. Believe in Jesus' divine identity. Look at verses 24 and 25. I told you you'd die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Now what Jesus says in verse 24, and I don't know if it got you or not, it's astonishing what Jesus just said. Verse 23, Jesus told the Jews he's from above. Here we see what it means. Jesus tells the religious around him that they are in danger of dying in their sins. By the way, note, there's a change from singular to plural. Do you not see that there? Sin to sins in verses 21 and 24. You'll die in your sin, you'll die in your sins. In general, saying somebody will die in their sin is an indication that they're going to die in the general state of being guilty of sin. Saying they will die in their sins here in verse 24 gets a little more personal. It's not just that they will die as human beings descended from Adam guilty of the sin that entered the world because of Adam's rebellion. These men are going to die in their sins, guilty of their own individual choices to rebel against God. And y'all, that's true for all of us. All human beings die because we are infected by the sin of Adam. We're all judged by God for the sins that each of us commits against God if we don't have those sins forgiven. Jesus says the teachers are in danger of dying without receiving forgiveness from God for the wrong that they've done before him, but there is a way they can get out of their danger. There's a word in verse 24 that gives them and us hope. Can you you guess? We can be a little informal for a moment. Can you guess what the single word is in 24 that gives us hope? Wake up and try. Unless, is that not a beautiful word? If I looked at you and said, you will die in your sins, how do you feel? Unless, unless the Jews and we who read this believe something, we will all die in our sins. That unless is beautiful. What must we believe. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, unless you believe that Jesus is he who came from above, he was the light of the world, you will die in your sins. Now, let's go a little deep for a second. If you study the Greek of verse 24, you're going to notice something fascinating. The word he does not appear in the Greek. I'm just curious because different translators do this. And if you all have the word he in italics in your copy of the Bible or bracketed, some would do this, some wouldn't. But the, you got it good. That's a good thing. He does not appear in the Greek. Literally what Jesus said to the Jews is, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Does that ring any bells for you? This is an instance where Jesus is actually claiming to personally be God. John MacArthur explains it this way, quote, 
The Lord's use of the absolute unqualified phrase, I am, is nothing less than a direct claim to full deity. When Moses asked God his name, he replied, I am who I am. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's the same phrase, ego eimi, that Jesus used here. The Septuagint similarly uses ego eimi in Deuteron- of God for I am in Deuteronomy 32, 39, Isaiah 41, 4, 43, verses 10 and 25, 45, 18, 46, 44. Jesus was applying to himself the tetragrammaton Yahweh, the name of God that was so sacred that the Jews refused to pronounce it. End quote. I'm going to read you a couple passages in the Old Testament. I want you to hear the I am language. And you'll hear the weight of Jesus saying, unless you believe, I am. In Exodus three thirteen and 14, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In Isaiah 43, 10 to 13, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Jesus said, I am. Jesus claimed to be the I am. He claimed to be God. And mark this. Unless we believe this about Jesus, we will die in our sins. If we miss that Jesus is God in the flesh, we die in our sins. Unless we believe that the baby in the manger and the man on the cross is the God who created us, we die in our sins. The Jewish teachers are standing in front of Jesus miss it. They ask him, who are you? And Jesus says, I am who I've always been claiming to be. He said he's the light of the world. He said he can give the water of life. He's obviously claiming to be God of the flesh. If they want to understand Jesus, if anybody wants salvation, we must believe in Jesus' divine identity. A person who tries to save you, but who is less than God, has absolutely no ability to forgive even one of your sins. Jesus has to be God or he can't be your savior. Fourth point. Y'all still with me? Believe in Jesus' completed mission. Believe in Jesus' completed mission. Verses 26 to 29. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They didn't understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. 
and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus lets the Pharisees know he's got a whole lot more he could say about them, but now is not the time. He's got much about them that he could bring into judgment, but now is not the time. Why? Jesus is doing exactly what the Father sent him to do, and the Father did not tell him to judge people, at least not yet. The Jews, as it says here, do not realize Jesus is speaking to them about God the Father. So Jesus goes on to tell them some more. When they lift him up, they'll understand. The reference to being lifted up is Jesus pointing the Jews to the fact that he will be crucified. He's letting them know that once they kill him on a cross, people are going to finally understand that everything that he ever said about himself is true. They're going to recognize Jesus is God the Son. They're going to see that Jesus perfectly did the will of the Father. Jesus is not telling us that everyone in the nation is going to repent the moment he dies on the cross. But it's going to be the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus that convinces anyone who comes to God. If you come to God, it's because you believe in Jesus because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And those are the only people who come to God for salvation. Jesus wraps up this little section for himself by pointing out that the Father is always with him because he Get this, this is so amazing. He perfectly does exactly what God the Father wants. Can you imagine that? Jesus has the presence of the Father with him at all times because Jesus always does exactly what God the Father wants him to do. This is Jesus saying that he has perfectly fulfilled the mission his Father has given him. Jesus lives a life of absolute, impeccable, sinless perfection. He actively, perfectly fulfills every one of God's holy requirements. And then in his death, his being lifted up, Jesus takes upon himself the role of a sacrifice, bearing the sin of all God will ever forgive. Now go back and make the connections here. Jesus has told us that he's perfect compared to our sinfulness. He has identified himself as God. He has called us to believe in him in order not to die in our sins. And now he's brought in the elements of his father and his crucifixion. And what do you get when you stir all those ingredients together? You've got to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross if you want the father to forgive you of your sins. Believe in Jesus's completed mission. He did everything he was sent to do and he did it perfectly. The good news Jesus brings to you and me is that every one of us can escape the wrath of God. We have all earned the wrath of God, of course, because we've all sinned against God. We deserve it. We deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. But God chose to send his son, his perfect son, to pay the price for our sins. Jesus Christ died on the cross and in that death, he paid the penalty for the sins of every single person who will put their faith in him. And when somebody entrusts their soul to Jesus, God credits that person with the perfect life Jesus lived. 
even though you and I have never actually lived that perfectly. Jesus' crucifixion, his completed mission, his resurrection, these identify for us exactly who he is because it clearly illustrates that Jesus is the Son of God and our loving Savior. So what does this lead you to do? Point number five. And by the way, point number five is everything the gospel according to John is about. You ready? Point five. Believe in Jesus. Verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many people heard what Jesus said. Many believed. This morning you've heard what Jesus said. Will you believe in Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus? In a hospital, that little bracelet on the baby's ankle tells you whose baby it is. Today, we've seen something way more important. We've seen Jesus tell us who he is. Unless we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, we will die in our sins. If we believe in him and come to him and ask him for grace, he will forgive us our sins, count us righteous before God forever, make us children of God. What about you? Will you die in your sins? You don't have to. Believe that Jesus is who he is and cry out to Jesus to give you mercy today. Admit that you're guilty of sin. That's the first step. Compare yourself to Jesus' perfection and see how we all fall short. Believe in Jesus' divine identity. He is God in the flesh. Believe in Jesus' completed mission. He perfectly lived, died, and rose to save our souls. Believe in Jesus. And if you have believed, oh, be grateful for the grace of Jesus. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, even now we bow. I pray right now, Lord, that there will be people here who for the first time look at you and say, God, I'm a sinner. God, I need your mercy. God, I'm asking for help. I'm asking for grace. I'm asking for you to forgive me because and only because of Jesus. Lord, help us to to find that life in you. Help us to find your grace and your mercy. Help us believe in Jesus for life. If there's someone who's figuring that out right now, I pray you'll save their very souls. And for those who are here who know you, because so many would, would come to church on a Sunday morning, know you, help us to be grateful. Help us to be in awe. Help us to prepare our hearts to celebrate the death of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus and Lord's Supper. Now, God, bless us as we sing in response to our Savior. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen.